Welcome. You're about to meet a sophisticated redneck. You probably won't laugh at his attempts at humor, but there's always that draw. I think I see him coming out of that barn over on the far left. And here he is, the Cooth Hillbilly. Hello, folks. This is the Cooth Hillbilly once again. Welcome back. The subject of this episode is democracy. Now, more than defining it, I need to explain and to explore it a bit. I hear complaints that they are destroying our constitutional democracy. Are they really? Is there a democracy to destroy? Now, I want one. You want one. But as there is none, we have to create one. Some listeners may not appreciate some of my comments. Let me assure you that the democracy that is as inclusive as possible is my lodestar. That requires me to look at what we actually have with eyes unclouded with some naive patriotism. Do we have a democracy? The 15 smallest states that voted for Trump and about half of another state have a combined population the same as California. California's 39-plus million people have two representatives in the Senate. Those 15 and a half have 31 representatives for essentially the same population. They also have 29 more votes in the Electoral College. If not for that perversion of the Electoral College, George Bush, the daddy, would have been the last Republican president. That might have kept us out of a couple of wars and saved us some tax cuts for the corporations in the top 10% making the deficit less than half of its present size. One person, one vote? I keep hearing the Electoral College was created as a concession to the slave states. No. The concession to the slave states was to allow them to count slaves as three-fifths of a person, non-voting, of course, to increase their presence and power in the Congress. There were two reasons for creating the Senate. One reason was to get the approval of the Constitution of the small states that feared being ignored or overruled by the big states. The Constitution had to be ratified by at least nine states in order to actually create the United States of America. The other reason is to act as a check on the majority. The rabble. Us. The elite. The founders didn't trust us to govern in ways that would ensure their property rights. Adding those two votes from each state to the Electoral College then distorted it as well. Originally, senators were appointed by state legislatures. It takes a strange definition of democracy to allow that in. Later, much later, that was remedied in the 17th Amendment. Let me refer you to one of the more important founders, John Jay. Now, some of you may not recall him, but he, as I said, was one of the most important ones. For anyone for whom that doesn't ring a bell, he was the second governor of New York, and he was with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, a negotiator of the Treaty of Paris, which concluded the Revolutionary War. And he was also the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was an abolitionist, so a man, though a man of wealth, his wealth wasn't based on slavery as most of the other founders were. Now, why do I bring him up? 
because of a quote of his. Quote, those who own the country ought to govern it, unquote. Are you beginning to see a trend here about property rights? Well, most of the founders, in their idealistic mode, leaned toward democracy. They held tighter to the methods that would protect their wealth. With a single exception, every Supreme Court from the very beginning to the present has held property rights above civil or human rights. That exception was the Warren Court. Earl Warren was the Republican governor of California and was appointed by Eisenhower in 1953. That court decided Brown v. Board of Education. It upheld the Voting Rights Bill and the Civil Rights Bill and Medicare, among others. Then we come to the truly bizarre. Corporations are people? And money is free speech? Governments at the federal, state, and most local levels are bought by the highest bidder. You probably didn't even put in a bid. A study of over 2,000 bills is instructive. Those bills were selected because they were contested and where one side or the other was supported by significant majorities of the population. Even with the support of large majorities of the people, 84% of those bills lost because they were opposed by corporations and the oligarch. We the corporations. Maybe it's just me, but my copies of the Constitution read a bit differently. I would find it easier to accept the corporations or people if they could be incarcerated or executed or were required to serve in Afghanistan. I don't believe we should permit corporations to participate in elections or lobbying or to impose their religious values on their employees or customers if they miss attending church or synagogue or mosque services three weeks in a row. So our so-called democracy represents money. And if you look at the electoral map, you'll see that it also represents trees, acreage, not human beings. There's no need to wonder at many of the problems John Q. Citizen faces, or to be surprised when we get a president that is as far removed as possible from being representative of the Hoi Polloi. Okay, now to democracy itself. In ancient Greek, the word demos meant people. Their word kratia meant rule. Although a form of democracy existed on a small scale at times before them, they formalized it. And that was ancient Greek. Languages change. In modern Greek, Kratia means states. One of my favorite examples of such change is the reason I never call a woman cute. Originally, cute meant bow-legged. Languages change. In Athens, all adult free males were citizens, not subjects. They ruled. Not minors, not women, not slaves, not foreigners. The most common estimate is that it totaled perhaps five or 6,000 souls. Each such citizen was entitled to vote on every public issue. There could be five or 6,000 people in a trial, just however many showed up. Supposedly 500 or so showed up at the trial of Socrates. It might be a bit unwieldy for our federal elections, so the solution was representative democracy. The theory behind democracy was that everyone except minors, women, slaves, and foreigners, had the right to participate in any decision that affected them. That sounded pretty reasonable. America started off with somewhat the same position. The founders added being white and property owners, and that dropped the percentage of the adult population from Athens' estimated 25% of adults to our estimated 5%. Given the much greater number of 
people and the geographic spread, they had to create a form of representative democracy. Over the past 200 plus years, we have opened the franchise up to slaves and women. Goody for us, finally. However, that still falls short of the insight that people should have a say in the public issues that affect them. That's not likely to be completely inclusive. Policy decisions that leaders of the U.S. make affect people the world over. I haven't met too many Americans that want, are willing to extend the franchise that far. And then there's the effect that decisions made today will have on those yet unborn. That's going to present a special problem. The original impetus for democracy is obviously unattainable. So, we necessarily have a very limited version, such as it is. However, as mentioned up front in this episode, the founders were less generous than the Greek Solons. The founders, although enlightened for their time, were largely elitist. They actually feared the rabble. That's you and me. They had to do something to protect themselves, their class. They did provide for direct election of the House Representatives, but not much else. Even this is perverted by gerrymandering and various schemes to disenfranchise those unlikely to vote for the Republicans. I heard a news report that within a week of the first meetings of the state legislators since Biden was president, 106 bills had been proposed in 27 states to restrict voting rights. In another week, that it increased to 165 bills in 33 states. And now it's well over 300. Though 33 is a majority of the 50 states, those states represent a minority of the total population. But that doesn't affect just those states. They get to send both House and Senate members to stymie or outvote the representatives of the majority. Though the state governments no longer select the senators, the Senate itself is not democratically representative. Additionally, the senators have created an arcane set of rules to keep, them, keep us at bay. You may have heard of the filibuster. That's just one way to frustrate the majority. Any senator may put a hold on whatever is before the body. And we can't forget Mitch McConnell, that paragon of democracy. As majority leader, he's made a habit of refusing to allow bills from the House to even get to the floor. So the world's greatest deliberative body couldn't consider, decide, or vote on whatever Mitch didn't like. In a democracy, it isn't possible for one person to thwart the will of the majority. Whether it's done for reasons of racism or ego or some idiotic ideology or to tweak the nose of the majority and so, or in some childish gamesmanship, it's not for the benefit of the people. All of that sounds much more like an oligarchy than a democracy. Americans have a tendency to complain about the government but do nothing. The frustration that has already led some to do something, they resorted to violence. That's obviously not the way we need to take on the responsibility of bringing us closer to the wonderful fantasy land we all heard about as children. Both republics and democracies are fragile. Historically, neither has had an impressive record of permanence. Most famously, the Romans began with a republic. It became a centralized imperial autocracy. As Benjamin Franklin famously responded about what the convention had created, quote, 
a republic if you can keep it, unquote. Permanence is not a given. Quickly, let me tell you about how they handled the matters in the ancient times. When one of the first two co-consuls of the Republic of Rome died, most everyone expected the other, Publius Valerius Publicola, to name himself king. To make certain that did not happen, he issued a law that if anyone declared himself to be king, anyone could murder that person with complete immunity. No, I'm not suggesting, just reporting. The other instance comes from the democracy of Athens. Every year the people could select one person to be banned from the city for ten years. I would subscribe to that, though one is perhaps too stringent a limit. While some of us rightfully get upset about the constant efforts of Republicans to deny the vote to minorities and others who are unlikely to side with them, few ever mention the disenfranchisement of prisoners. The historic trend has been to widen the franchise, to slaves, to women, to 18-year-olds. The inclusion of those groups of society are generally accepted and justified by the Constitution in its amendments. However, lawmakers and judges have taken to themselves the power to take away the vote from felons. Beyond taking it away from those convicted of treason, they have no constitutional authority to do so. Several states deny felons the vote by law. Some deny it to their, in their state constitution, mine included. They do this because the conduct of elections is left to the various states. However, the right to vote is guaranteed by the federal constitution. No state constitution or law can deny that right. Otherwise, it isn't a right. How can politicians get up on their platforms and call it our most important or most fundamental right if it's not a right? This practice began as a way of thwarting the 15th Amendment, which gave the freed slaves the right to vote. This began in the 19th century. It should not be a part of the 21st. As of now, more than 5 million people have their rights taken away unconstitutionally. That's more than double the prison population. That's because most jurisdictions don't restore it upon release. Those people are punished for life, regardless of how serious or petty the crime. Oddly, most prisoners and former prisoners are of color. Another questionable policy by the states is the purging of the voter rule. The various states have various criteria. Most of the criteria are subtly or not so subtly skewed by racism. Gerrymandering is another way of effectively disenfranchising specific groups. It has no place in a country that wants to be known as a democracy. Let me take one more swipe at the filibuster. Up until this millennium, it was used almost exclusively to obstruct legislation for racist purposes. I can't recall, but it may have been used exclusively for that purpose. Now it's used by the Republicans primarily as a power move. Biden, a creature of the Senate for 30-odd years, despite his support of some mildly progressive issues, is a hidebound center-right politician. He does not want to eliminate the filibuster. He should. 
When it comes to failing to get one particular bill passed because of the filibuster, he might be inclined to be willing to suffer the loss. But there will surely be another, and another, and another, if he fails to get his promised agenda accomplished on one issue, he'll likely be forgiven. But much more than that, and he will lose that paper-thin majority in the off-year elections and will accomplish absolutely nothing. He'll deserve to fail. But we don't deserve for him to fail. He needs to do what is necessary to bring a couple of recalcitrant Democratic senators to play with the team and eliminate the filibuster. Bipartisanship is nice, but it's not as important as the issues of voting rights and climate change and infrastructure and all the rest of a long list. The GOP has no intention of legislating beyond tax cuts for the parasites that rule, as John Jay would have it. If Biden does lead the way to eliminating the filibuster only after losing a bill or here or there, they will likely be unnecessary losses. There will be no reason to delay and every reason to refuse to live up to what someone referred to him as Sleepy Joe. He really needs to look to FDR and Lyndon Johnson as his role models for how to deal with Congress. Bipartisanship is no more than a weapon in the hands of the GOP. Forget it, at least until he has comfortable leads in both chambers of Capitol. That can only be accomplished by Biden enjoying a string of high-profile accomplishments. They need to be progressive accomplishments, because that's where the youth are and the direction they are pushing the Democratic Party and the country. Now, it must be admitted that simply eliminating the filibuster has a potential downside. That is the possibility of Republicans controlling both houses of Congress and the White House. I don't expect that's a very high degree of probability, but it's possible. There would be nothing to stop them, and what they have become makes that possibility a nightmare. The disasters that Trump brought would appear as child's play. Someone pointed out that the filibuster could be maintained, but modified to require it to be spoken. A senator could hold the floor as long as he could hold his bladder. They would speak much longer than they could script. Therefore, given so much time to deal without a dis the discipline of a script and the inevitable boredom, misspeaking would be inevitable. That would provide the treasure trove of sound bites for future political ads. That appears to be an effective alternative. Another is to require that only 60% of those present. As it now stands, all Democrats have to be present while Republicans can play a few rounds of golf. There likely are other changes that would serve the purpose, but the presence rules are an insult to the people. One last thing. I happen to realize that I've made fairly frequent mention of racism. No, I'm not black. I grew up in the Bible Belt of the South as a privileged white boy. I wasn't really aware that I was all that privileged. I was just like all the other boys in the neighborhood. We weren't wealthy. My dad managed a grocery store, but they did fork over enough money to send me to prep school. I was one of the poor boys, one of the very few poor boys at that school. I was treated less warmly than the others. 
At school, I was of a lower class, but walking home from school in my uniform, I was suspected of being a snob. It wasn't all that pleasant. I managed to get kicked out of that school three times in two years before my mother gave up begging them to let me stay. In the Army's basic training, our company was composed of about one-third black, one-third white, one-third Puerto Rican. I discovered there were some whites I liked and some I didn't. I also discovered there were some blacks I liked and some didn't. I realized that it was the individual that made the difference, not the color. As for the Puerto Ricans, they were clannish. They, they didn't interact with the rest of us enough to get to know them. Then I married a lady from Korea. I then experienced even more discrimination than I had in prep school. I wasn't thrilled with it. I was even less pleased the way my wife was treated, even by my mother. I'm not aware of any problems my children had when they were very young, but that changed when they started to school. Kids would call them names, start fights with my son, and he was frequently late getting home, though he rode the same bus as his older sister. She told me that he didn't want me to see him crying or scuffed up, so he waited to get his act together before I saw him. It was all I could do to re restrain myself from retaliating against those parents. My wife passed away while my son was still in grammar school. The trauma of knowing your kid was getting beat up for such a stupid reason is palatable even to this day. The discrimination we experienced falls short of what blacks and some others feel their entire lives, but it was enough to make me care deeply about the problem. I'll step down from the pulpit now. That should be enough for today. Well, thanks for stopping by, and y'all come back now, you hear? Thanks for coming by and listening to the Couth Hillbilly Podcast. Not to worry, he'll be back and we hope that you will be too. In the meantime, just run over to CouthHillbilly.com and subscribe. That's C-O-U-T-H Hillbilly.com. That way you'll be certain to never miss an episode. Stay safe.